You're listening to Redeeming Grace Audio. For more resources or messages, check out redeeminggracecc.com. What do Abraham, King David, the Apostle Paul, Judas Iscariot, the Emperor Nero, Genghis Khan, Leonardo da Vinci, Napoleon, Thomas Edison, John Wilkes Booth, Joseph Stalin, the original Paul McCartney and Betty White all have in common. They're all dead. Now, if one of those was a surprise to you, just look it up. It's a wild ride if you want a conspiracy to take up the rest of your afternoon. But the reality is it's true. You have people from all these different eras, all these different ages, all kinds of different backgrounds, people who seem to live very good and honorable lives, and people who live very despicable and wicked lives, and everything in between, all of them have had the same outcome. They're all part of the same club. They're all people who have died. And if you've ever wondered... Is there any way possible that I could ever have something in common with Abraham, King David, Paul, Nero, Genghis Khan, Leonardo da Vinci, Napoleon, Thomas Edison, John Wilkes Booth, Joseph Stalin, the original Paul McCartney, and Betty White? I have good news for you this morning, or depending on how you feel about it, kind of iffy news. You're going to join that club one day too. And so will I. Because the reality is, we're all going to die. Now, likelihood is probably not today or at this moment. It would be really, I think, unfortunate for my family and for myself if I just fell over dead right now, but I do think it would make a pretty (laughs) striking point if I said, we're all going to die, and then I just fell out dead, but hopefully that's not the illustration that's made today. But it is a reality, and something that whether we think about it or not on a regular basis, that's true for each and every one of us. And something that the knowledge of, the knowledge of this idea of our own mortality or our own death, whether it's conscious or not, is something that has probably the most powerful impact and motivational force in our lives for how we live, how we go about our day-to-day lives, and how we practice this thing called life. And so the way that we think about death matters. And it's something that Scripture talks about at great length, especially in the wisdom literature. And so we're going to look at Ecclesiastes chapter 9 and see what the teacher has to say about this idea of death and how we should process it, how we should think about it, and how we should live in light of that truth. But then like we have been through the entirety of this book, we're going to take the gaps in information that Ecclesiastes has and fill them with the gospel. And see how particularly the power of the resurrection of Jesus changes the way that we are called to live, knowing that we are all going to die. And so I want to read from Ecclesiastes chapter 9. And the teacher says this, But all this I laid to heart, examining it all. How the righteous and the wise, their deeds are in the hand of God. Whether it is love or hate, man does not know. Both are before him. It's the same for all. Since the same event happens to the righteous and the wicked, the good and the evil, to the clean and the unclean, to him who sacrifices and him who does not sacrifice. As the good one is, so is the sinner. And he who swears is as he who has an oath. This is an evil in all that is done under the sun, that the same event happens to all. Also, the hearts of the children of man are full of evil, and madness is in their hearts while they live, and after that they go to the dead. 
But he who is joined with all the living has hope. For a living dog is better than a dead lion. For the living know that they will die, but the dead know nothing, and they have no more reward, for the memory of them is forgotten. Their love and their hate and their envy have already perished. And forever they have no more share in all that is done under the sun. Go eat your bread with joy. And drink your wine with a merry heart, for God has already approved what you do. Let your garments be always white. Let not oil be lacking on your head. Enjoy life with the wife whom you love all the days of your vain life that he has given you under the sun, because that is your portion in life and in your toil at which you toil under the sun. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with your might. For there is no work or thought or knowledge or wisdom in Sheol to which you are going. Again, I saw under the sun the race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, nor the bread to the wise, nor riches to the intelligent, nor favor to those with knowledge, but time and chance happen to them all. For man does not know his time. Like fish that are taken in an evil net, and like birds that are caught in a snare, so the children of man are snared at an evil time when it suddenly falls upon them. I've also seen this example of wisdom under the sun, and it seemed great to me. There was a little city with few men in it, and the great king came against it and besieged it in the building. Great siege works against it. But there was found in it a poor wise man, and he by his wisdom delivered the city, yet no one remembered that poor man. But I say that wisdom is better than might, though the poor man's wisdom is despised and his words are not heard. The words of the wise, heard and quiet, are better than the shouting of a ruler among fools. Wisdom is better than weapons of war, but one sinner destroys much good. And that feels like a very nice passage for Lent. May God add his blessing and his favor to the reading of his word. Thanks be to God for his word. Father God, this is an intense passage. But I'm so thankful that you have not shied away from the difficult things. That as you've laid out wisdom for those who follow after you, you've included every aspect of life, including death. And God, I thank you for this passage in particular. As we see a teacher struggling with something that feels so vain and futile, But God, we know we don't read any part of your word in a vacuum. But in the full narrative of Scripture, you interpret passage after passage by story after story, and we can see this passage in particular, one that feels so very void of of hope and meaning through the lens of the resurrection and the reminder that Jesus changes everything. So God, teach us to wrestle well with this difficult topic. But I pray that just as we're told that when we encounter loss in our lives, we don't mourn like those who have no hope, as we look toward the inevitable end, that save Christ returning before, that we are all going to taste death. God, help us not to mourn that with no hope, 
to see that as just a momentary passing from one life to another, from the temporary to the eternal, and help us to have a hope that is greater than fear. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So, death is pretty much inevitable. Again, there is that nice caveat there, because since we're already talking about this on this side of the resurrection, that we know the old creed says that Christ has died, Christ is risen, and Christ will come again. And so it is entirely likely or probable, just as much as in any generation, that Christ does return to make all things right and all things new before we taste death. But just in case he doesn't, it's important to know that more likely we are probably going to find that as our end. And at the beginning of this passage, we see the teacher wrestling with this idea. Because in the passage before, in chapter 8, we saw this idea that everything is going to end in the same way. Whether you're rich or poor, whether you're righteous or wicked, that death comes to all. That this is the end that everyone is on the trajectory toward. And as the writer of Ecclesiastes and this teacher is working through all of this and sees that the same event happens to everyone, this is the summary that the teacher has in verse 3. This is an evil in all that is done under the sun, that the same event happens to all. And I think that's really interesting language that the teacher decides to use here, calling this an evil that this happens to everyone. And now we can super spiritualize this passage because we're really good at doing that, I think especially with wisdom literature, trying to draw out some sort of deeper, higher spiritual meaning that gives us some sort of comfort with these passages. And so we could say, yeah, it is death is an evil thing because we know that the wages of sin is death. And that the reason why death exists is because sin exists in the world. And so we can have this nice theological bow wrapped around it saying, okay, he is looking at sin and death and calling those things evil. But I think, especially now that we've gotten to know the teacher a little bit over the course of this entire study, when we look at this passage, I see more of a personal and emotional statement than I do a theological one. That as the teacher is looking at this inevitable outcome, that no matter whether you're righteous or wicked, no matter whether you're wise or foolish, that this same event is coming and happening to each and every one of us, he looks at that and says, I, I don't like that. I hate the concept that every single one of us is going to die. And he seems to particularly be offended that the same event happens to the righteous and to the evil. He says, this is an evil that is done under the sun, that the same event happens to all. In essence, you see the teacher here saying, this isn't fair. I don't like this. It seems wicked and awful, and I want nothing to do with it. And to be completely and totally honest, (laughs) I agree. This is a concept, this idea of death and mortality is something that has been a constant struggle throughout the course of my entire life. If I'm just putting cards on the table, I don't want to die. I don't like the idea. I don't like the concept. And so there's a little part, especially as birthdays get closer and the older I get, the more just mortality begins to kind of set in. And there's at least a couple weeks in, I don't know, June of every year where I just think, I'm a little bit closer to death. And that really keeps me up at night. 
And it's something that really has been a part of my life since I can remember. I remember being seven, eight, nine years old and going and spending some, some days with my grandparents, right? I would go to Hiawassee to see my dad's family, or I would go to Athens to see my mom's family. And I guess just being in the presence of grandparents who were visibly closer to possibly that outcome than my parents were, it just got my little brain moving and my little brain thinking. If you're a grandparent, I'm not saying that you are going to die first or anything along those lines. It's just in my little seventh and or seven, eight, nine-year-old brain, that's kind of where things went. And I remember just staying up entire nights being deeply concerned with this idea that my grandparents were going to die or that my parents would die or that one day I was going to die. And to be completely forthcoming, I've told you before, I struggle greatly a lot of times with faith and doubt and what that means, and I doubt my faith, and I have to inject a lot of faith into my doubt, and that adds just another extra layer on top of all of this. And so I get where the writer of Ecclesiastes is coming, and I really would be fine probably with dying if I didn't know it was going to come, right? If I didn't know that that was a part of life and I could just ignore that it was going to happen completely, but then like people die around me and then all of a sudden I'm reminded that death is going to be happening and it just throws me back in this whole rhythm and routine. And coming to grips with our own mortality, no matter how deeply you may wrestle with it or not, can cause us to have a lot of thoughts, a lot of emotions, a lot of feelings, and again, whether consciously or subconsciously, really has the power to determine a lot of our actions and how we live. And so where does the teacher land on all this? Because clearly he's thinking through these things, he's wrestling through these things, and the approach that the teacher has through the entire book of Ecclesiastes is, okay, I've looked at all the world, I've seen all of these things, this is how life is, we can't change how life is, and so we better learn how to adapt and just exist in this world as God has deemed appropriate. And so he breaks it down like this. Go eat your bread with joy. Drink your wine with a merry heart, for God already approved what you do. Let your garments always be white. Let not oil be lacking on your head. Enjoy life with the wife whom you love all the days of your vain life that he has given you under the sun because that is your portion in life and in your toil at which you toil under the sun. And I think there's a lot of truth and importance in what the writer of Ecclesiastes says. Because as he's already been laying out here in this book, the inevitability of death and the brevity of life is something that has the power to grab our attention and misplace our priorities. And so we can start to think, man, I got to carpe this diem. I've got to seize the day. I've got to get as much in this life as I possibly can. And I've got to get all that I can out of this life because it's so very short. And so we start running this race. And he even uses that language about the swift winning the race and winning the battle. And we think if I'm just fast enough, if I can just consume as much life as possible, if I can just do enough things and accomplish enough tasks, because that's the oldest way to live eternally, right? In ancient cultures and civilizations, I'm going to make a name for myself so that even if I die, my name is going to live on before me. And so we start to get distracted with all of these things and we forget about what really matters. But the writer of Ecclesiastes says, listen, just calm down. Eat your bread with joy. Drink your wine and be merry. Spend some time with your family that you love. Wash your clothes. It seems like a weird thing to inject in here, but I feel like he's speaking directly to me. Do some laundry, man. Wash your head. I didn't say hair because I don't have any. 
Just get the most out of the life that you've been given. Enjoy the portion and the lot that God has provided for you with everything that you can. And I do think that we need to inject a little bit of that into our lives because we can be so distracted. We can try to run this race as quickly as possible and just amass for ourselves as many toys or pieces of notoriety that we can when we need to stop and focus on the things that matter and look at the life that God has given us and find beauty and joy in that instead of looking at all the other lives that we think we want and trying to gain those things. But, Here's the problem. Even if we do that well, as good as that is, and as rewarding of a life that that can be, it's still, at its core, a vanity. Because look, verse 10. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might. Beautiful. For there is no work or thought or knowledge or wisdom in Sheol to which you are going. (laughs) It's so gloriously emo there. I just love that he says, listen, go ahead and just find the joy that you have in your life because it's all you have. Work really hard. Accomplish what you can in this framework that God has given you because you're on this pathway to this place that we'll call Sheol or death. And in Sheol, you can't work. You can't think. You can't speak. There's nothing. There's just nothing. It doesn't exist. You don't exist. And now you're dirt. And to dirt, you will return. And that's all there is to it. So you might as well get all you can because it's all vanity. And so even if we live the most wholesome, simple, intentional life with the ones that we love and the life that God has given us, it's still vanity if Sheol or death is the last word. But thankfully, it's not. Because as we know, Jesus changes everything. Jesus maybe lived the most aware life that anyone has ever lived. We see Jesus from a very young age, very aware of the mission that he had to accomplish. Early on in the life and the ministry of Christ, he's teaching the disciples things that when we look at them, we recognize, okay, he's telling them about his death, but they didn't even get it. He was saying things like, take up your cross and follow me before the crucifixion. There's no way that the disciples could have possibly understood what Jesus was talking about. Even when he was predicting his death over and over and over again, the disciples were sitting there thinking, surely we've got this wrong. That's not what he's talking about, but he was. Jesus was not only aware that he was going to die, but Jesus knew exactly how he was going to die because he wrote the script. Because before the foundations of the earth, God knew that in the fullness of time, he would send his son to be born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law. And how was he going to do it? By a criminal's death on a cross. And so Jesus walked around with the cross always in his sights. Jesus knew that he was marching on a pathway toward Golgotha. And so what did he do with his life? He went out to the least of these, outside the city walls to meet with the lowly and the destitute, the poor and the broken, sinners, tax collectors and prostitutes. 
He sat at their tables. He ate their bread and he told them about the gospel. He looked for the sick and the hurting and the lame and the blind and he gave them back their sight. He helped them to stand up and he cured them of their disease. He even raised the dead back to life. And everywhere that he went, he was proclaiming the good news that the kingdom of God was at hand. Peter, not that one, Peter did not seem to know that he was going to die. Or at least he was really uncomfortable with the idea. And as we look at Peter's life, we see these moments of great faith and also great doubt in what God was doing. And always the doubt seems to be wrapped around this idea that Jesus was going to die. Peter found that information disturbing and almost offensive. To the point where when Jesus was predicting his own death, Peter corrects Jesus. He says, no, far be it from us. We are not going to let you die. And then we know as that time comes when Jesus is about to be arrested and taken on to his trial and ultimately his death, Peter is the one who drew a sword because he was going to defend with his own life the life of Christ. Because Peter had a very Ecclesiastes mindset. Peter saw death as the end. And if Jesus died, that was the end of the story. And Peter, as it seems in the text, was beginning to start to think that Jesus was going to march into Jerusalem, bring in the kingdom of God, and that's when eternity was going to begin, and didn't think that he was going to taste that death. And so the idea of Jesus going to die really messed with his mentality because, again, he had this Ecclesiastes mindset until, until Peter saw something that the teacher in Ecclesiastes couldn't. Because when we look in the letters that Peter wrote, we see those letters saturated with a hope that the Peter before the resurrection didn't have. A confidence that the Peter before the resurrection could never wrap his mind around. A willingness to die. That the Peter, even as Jesus was on trial and being crucified, just couldn't take hold of. What's amazing about Peter's life, and I think one of the most interesting aspects that's a really easy part to skip over, is after the resurrection, Jesus sat down with Peter, this man who was afraid to lose Jesus, who was afraid to lose his own life, who denied his relationship with Jesus to save his own life. Jesus sat down with Peter, and he explained to Peter how Peter was going to die. And Peter said, okay, I'm ready to go. And he began walking in the steps of Jesus and became the cornerstone on which the Christian church was built as he was proclaiming not only the death and forgiveness of sins, but the resurrection and hope of Jesus Christ. And as he starts writing down letters to the churches, we see those letters just filled with that hope. But not only Peter reinstilling the hope of the resurrection in the life of those people, but telling them, okay, now, if this is true, then this is how we need to live. And that's where we come upon 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 7 through 11. And Owen, if you'll pull that up for me. Peter says, the end of all things is at hand. 
Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep on loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve and serve one another. As good stewards of God's varied grace, whoever speaks is one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves is one who serves by the strength that God supplies in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. And if you don't mind, just leave that up because I want to talk about that passage for a little while. Think about how he starts this passage. The end of all things is at hand. Not only does Peter know that he is going to die and how he is going to die, but there is an expectation here that Jesus is going to return and make all things right and all things new. But with that, not only is Peter looking toward his own death, but also the death of the world as we know it. Now we have a man who is very aware of his own mortality, but also the everlasting life that came through Jesus. And Peter's writing to this church that's in the middle of persecution, reminding them that, yes, the resurrection is true, but also the end is at hand. And so because we're in between the resurrection and the new resurrection, this is how we live. Peter tells us this is how a Christian lives, knowing that we're going to die. And the first thing here he says is that we should be self-controlled and sober-minded. And if you want to show the world that you have a different perspective on life and death, this is a good way to live. Because we live in a world of hysteria. That we're constantly swinging back and forth on extremes. And this isn't just something that's true for us. I think a lot of times we can look at just how quickly information can spread and the way that people react to world events and how we're just hot and cold all of the time and think, oh my goodness, this is the most reactionary people have ever been. We've just lost our minds. Society has fallen apart. We're just a society of foolish people. But the reality is all societies are societies of foolish people because there is something innate in us that doesn't allow us to be self-controlled or sober-minded. Anytime we hear things, especially that feel like death or that feel like danger, that feel like our world is falling apart, our immediate response is to think about the worst possible scenarios, to let our minds kind of wander into all of these different dark places, and then start making irrational decisions and irrational choices, and we lose our self-control. I feel like I guess I got to reference it, right? A dude was slapped at the Oscars. And after that, as Will Smith was being incredibly contrite and apologizing, he said, love will make you do crazy things. And when we're not sober-minded or self-controlled, it can. And so can fear. And so can confusion. And so can create difficulty or uncertainty. But Peter says, no, 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 no. We have our certainty. Like the writer of Hebrews says, that we have evidences of the things that we can't see. We have a substance on which we can stand, and that's the power of the resurrected Christ. And so you don't have to be, as James says, blown back and forth by every wind that changes, but you can think about things with a resurrection mindset. You can look at things not just in the temporal matter, like the Peter before the resurrection was doing, but on an eternal scope, realizing that no matter what may come in this life, the power of the resurrection is great 
greater. And so I don't have to fear. I don't have to run away. I don't have to panic. I don't have to make rash decisions. But I can ground myself in the truth of the gospel and live a life that is sober-minded and self-controlled because Christ is in control and the resurrection proves that. Last week I made a reference to my little pocket guidebook to the apocalypse. And there's a chapter in that book that walks through just the last 200 years of American history and how many people who bear the name of Christ have had a panicked-based eschatology that anytime anything happens that doesn't fit with their plan or their purpose, all of a sudden go into this danger mindset that we just need to run away or hope that Jesus comes and snatches us up because everything is falling apart. But Christians are not meant to be a people of hysteria, but a people of faith and trust and hope, always self-controlled and sober-minded. In fact, Paul tells us that self-control is evidence of the Spirit's work in our lives. So we're self-controlled and sober-minded. But then he continues by saying, love one another earnestly. And I love that adverb there at the end, because we talk a lot about loving one another. And we've already seen the writer of Ecclesiastes say, live with the life, the life, to live the life with the wife that you love. It's been a long weekend for rhymes. And so we know that we need to love our family and the people that God has placed in our lives. But when Peter is writing this passage particularly, we know that as he says, love one another, he is talking to the church. Love your brothers and sisters in Christ earnestly. And we get the best opportunity to do that in the local church. But we use that word love a lot. And we may even tell each other that we love each other a lot. But generally speaking, the actions of church members who belong to the same church, who call themselves brothers and sisters in Christ, joining arms in ministry, in a local expression of our faith for the purpose of gospel expansion. We talk about loving each other, but we really kind of love each other like we love pizza. Like sometimes we really love pizza. I'm going to speak for myself. Maybe you don't love pizza. Sometimes I really love pizza. And I will say with my mouth, "Mm, I love pizza because it is a true statement at that moment. And sometimes at that exact moment, I think pizza is crucial to the sustenance of my life. That's how much I love it. And sometimes we feel that for one another. When we're going through tragedy, when we're going through difficulty, when we see the church acting like it should and loving us and building us up, or maybe even you just had a bad day on a Sunday morning and you come in and one of your church family members gives you a compliment that all of a sudden changes your perspective on things and you think, oh my gosh, I love you. But then sometimes we love church members like we love pizza in the sense that like, I know I love pizza, but I'm okay without pizza. I'm okay if I only see you guys like every Sunday, maybe, maybe at a small group or something like that. But Peter says, love one another earnestly with a passion and an intention. The writer of Hebrews says, don't forsake the meeting together like is the habit of some. And the reason for that is that we should love being together and spending time with one another and investing in one another's lives. And our love should be earnest for one another because we've been united by the power of the resurrection. But it doesn't stop there, does it? He says, love one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins, and show hospitality to one another without grumbling. Welcome one another into your lives, into your homes, into the rhythms that you're participating in. 
But then this idea of hospitality can even go beyond the scope of the church that we're supposed to, as people who believe in the resurrection, have bigger tables and wider doors so that we're going out and loving our neighbors as ourselves and bringing more people into that love and affection that Jesus has given us for one another. We then take that into the world and share the gospel with people outside of our community, outside of our church, outside of our family, and invite them in with open hands and a hospitality that Christ has shown to the least of these, we should do the same. We don't just stop with loving our family or our church family, but we go like Jesus did outside of the church walls, outside of the city gates, to find people who need the truth and the beauty of the resurrection and bring them in. And we do this by being good stewards by using our gifts for God's glory and for the expansion of the gospel. Peter says, what you got? Whoever speaks, speak as an oracle of God. You can serve, serve by the strength that God supplies in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. In the world that teaches us that this life is all that we have, we're meant to look at our skills and our gifts as utilities to get what we want. Oh, you're good at something? Maximize that. Monetize that. Do whatever you can to use your gifts and your talents to be able to redeem for yourself whatever you can have here and now because this is all the time you've got, so you better use it well. But Jesus says, no, that's not the way this works. You're not an owner of that gift. You're a steward. You're a manager. You've been given that gift for a purpose. Can you talk really nice? Use your words to talk about Jesus. Are you a hard worker? Use your work ethic to serve your brothers and sisters. What are the talents you have? What are the gifts that God has given you? Don't waste your life using those for yourself to build yourself a pretty house or a nice 401k, but use those gifts to be able to love and to serve those in your church family and those outside the walls because your time for that kind of ministry is short. So maximize it, use it well, glorify God, see the gospel go out and do what it can do. Because Jesus has secured your eternity, you can give him the life that you have on this side of death to bring him glory, to make his name great, and to see men and women and children come to faith in Christ Jesus. So, in case you've forgotten, you are going to die. And so am I. But that's not the end of your story if you've put your faith and your hope in Christ Jesus. It's just a short chapter, but it's an important one. And so are you going to use this chapter in your life? Am I going to use this chapter in my life to store up for myself treasures, whether they're emotional, physical, or just from the perspective of notoriety? Am I going to store up these treasures that will fade into vanity? Or are we going to allow the hope of the resurrection to illuminate every moment in our lives and to allow the gospel to be the driving force of every action, being people who are sober-minded and self-controlled, loving one another earnestly, showing hospitality, and using the gifts we've been given for God's glory and the spread of the gospel. Because thanks to Jesus, Sheol no longer has the last word. And so we need to live 
and die and live again like people who believe that truth.